realize it's been a long day for many of you, especially many of our ladies, showers and conference and all kinds of things going. Uh, I realize it's dark outside already. I realize there's all sorts of reasons to wrap things up quickly. None of that will affect me at all. <laughs> We've got a lesson to cover. We're going to cover it. So, uh, But I do understand all those things, if that's any comfort to you. We <laughs> Actually, this is part six, so we ought to be pretty well wrapping this up by now, I would, I would think. Uh, most of you have been here through the series. We're talking about understanding the times. We're looking at moral problems, moral uh, questions of the day that we don't always understand and we want to understand. Uh, we want to know what to do about them. And the twelfth topic that we've tackled this year is the matters of life and death. And we kind of started with the beginning of life, talking about uh, abortion and embryonic stem cell research, and uh, then moved into euthanasia and uh, physician-assisted suicide, kind of the end-of-life matters. And that's our last topic tonight is kind of getting a little more general on just end-of-life decisions, if you will. Um, Hopefully you remember what we talked about in this whole topic. Uh, We spent the first week talking about the sanctity of life and what the Bible says about uh, life's value, human life's value. Uh, Two different worldviews in the world today. Uh, God says life, human life, is extremely valuable. Anybody that takes it has to forfeit their own life and has no restrictions on what kind of human life is ultimately valuable. There's another worldview that says human life isn't that big a deal. And uh, we have that conflict in the world today. But uh, that's where we've been. Now, uh, we got to euthanasia, the end of life kind of decisions that people want to make because they don't want any suffering. Uh, And that comes from that worldview where this world is all there is. So let's see what the Bible has to say about it. That's what we're going to start with on the second page there. Uh, What does the Bible say about end-of-life matters? We know what it says about the sanctity of life, but how about when it comes to the end of life? Does the Bible say anything about it? And I put 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1 on there as a reference because some people use that as a uh, reason or a validation of euthanasia or even physician-assisted suicide or putting somebody out of their misery, uh, giving them death with dignity is one of the slogans. Uh, And if we read the story, uh, Saul did request uh, that somebody take his life. And let's just read the story, make sure we get it. Sometimes people take a little piece out of a story and doesn't really convey the whole message. So let's go back to 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 31, the last chapter in 1 Samuel. And here's the story. Uh, verse 1. The Philistines fought against Israel, and the Philistines pressed hard, verse 2, uh, after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me, torture me. 
But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all these men died together the same day. All right, some people read that and say, okay, there. That proves that it's all right to end people's life, to put them out of their misery, to save them from the suffering. Well, this isn't in a hospital. This is on the battlefield. And Saul knew what the Philistines would do if they captured him alive. He knew what kind of torture was coming. Now, whether he made a godly decision or not, we don't know. But that's what he chose on the battlefield. I don't want to be tortured. I don't want to go through that. And maybe it was something to do with the fact that he was king. That he didn't want his nation embarrassed like that. I'm not going to be captured and let them do that. But we don't know all those things. All we know is Saul decided... He asked his armor bearer, and his armor bearer said, no, I'm not doing that. And so he fell on his own sword. Now, as proof of what might happen, we just go on a little bit further. Verse 8 says, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news. And they put his armor in the temple, and they nailed his body to the wall of Bethshan. Uh, they nailed Saul and his three sons up on the wall for everybody to see. And so we know what came of the fact of them after they were dead. Now, the interesting part of the story comes in 2 Samuel chapter 1, where somebody came to report this death to David. It says, after the death of Saul, David returned, etc. And then on the third day, a man arrived. And uh, he came to David, and he fell on the ground to honor him. And he told him the story. Uh, we'll summarize it here. He told him that he was in the Israelite battle. He saw Saul get wounded. And Saul asked him to kill him. And so this guy said, well, I did. I, I honored his request. And I picked up his crown and his his uh, bracelet here, and uh, I brought them to you, so you know. Now, obviously, since we just read the real story, this guy was lying. He was probably there. He did have the crown, evidently. Uh, so he was there, but he made up this story. Maybe he overheard Saul and the armor bearer. I, I don't know. But he went and told David that here's what he did, and I guess he thought he'd get some kind of reward or something. Anyhow, so... The, David and his men mourned. They tore their clothes and they fasted and mourned for Saul and his sons. And then David kind of tells us what a godly man, a man after God's own heart, thinks of this whole business. Okay? The rest, the, everything we've read so far is just what happened. Now we know what a man of God does about it. And look what David did. David said to the young man, uh, where are you from? He said, well, I'm an Amalekite. And David said, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? In other words, how in the world did you think it was all right for you to kill King Saul? Even with all the other stuff we know. Even with him being critically wounded, even with the army coming, all that. David said, what made you think you had the right to do that? 
Then David had him killed. Told his men, strike him down. Go strike him down. Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. There's what David thought about somebody taking somebody's life, even this, in this extreme circumstance. So maybe that tells us something different than what people get out of chapter 31. Okay, Deuteronomy 31.6 says, and this is a overarching command for Christians and God's people for all ages. It says, be strong and of good courage. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And the situation that was happening there, God's people were getting ready to go into the promised land. We might draw a little analogy there, mightn't we? They were afraid. They didn't know what they were going to face. There were unknown dangers in moving into the promised land. They had heard stories about the giants there. They were probably scared about it a little bit. And Moses told them, be strong and of good courage. Fear not. Don't be afraid. The Lord your God is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's a command for God's people in the New Testament also. Whatever we're facing. Don't be afraid. Don't fear it. Be of good courage. God's going to be with you. Romans 8.32 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or uh, nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. What we're talking about is end of life, where some people say, well, it's so fearful, the suffering and the, the, the unknown and all. We ought to just take people's lives and spare them that. Psalm 23, 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul had a problem that he wanted to get rid of. He was suffering, evidently, physically, and he didn't like it. And he asked God three times, and God said, My grace is sufficient for you. You can handle it. You can take it. Job, read the whole story of Job. If anybody ever had a right to ask for euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, I'd say Job qualified. You just read the first chapter after the news came in about his family. I think I'd have been ready to go about that time. But Job said, the Lord's in charge. I trust him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 is talking specifically about physical suffering. And it says we have this treasure. We have, we're Christians, but we have it in earthen vessels so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. What Paul's saying is we're in earthen vessels and we're breaking down and outwardly we're dying and all of that. But there's a reason for that. It's so the world can see that we trust God's power. Yeah. When everything's going good, when you're healthy and happy and rich and everything's all right, you know, outsiders don't pay much attention whether you believe in God or not. But if things don't go well, 
and you understand these verses that we've just read and say, I still trust in God. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. I don't fear. I'm courageous. He won't leave me. The world pays attention. That's what Paul says. We've got this in earthen vessels so people will see this. So, there's a lot more verses we could look at, but those those give us a, a concept that God's Word, the Bible, doesn't say we ought to avoid all suffering. Because we ought to trust God in it, whatever it is. Now, after all the things we've talked about, what do we do about end-of-life decisions. I mean, it's easy to say, okay, euthanasia is wrong, we're against that. Physician assisted suicide is wrong, we're against that. But in this day and age, with modern medical technology, we can keep people alive a long time. We can keep them breathing and going and the heart pumping and all that for a long time. And many of us have already faced that and... Everybody else will eventually, probably. Uh, How do we make that decision? How do we decide when, okay, mom or dad or grandma or whoever has gone on long enough? It's time to end this. Now, obviously, we we don't end it with euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, but we get to make those decisions today because of medical technology to some degree. Now, so I'm going to go through some things that I think are might be helpful when we have to make that end-of-life decision. Uh, but let me just say something in general first, and I didn't put it in the handout, but uh, the best advice I can give you, I think, from my limited experience with people coming to the end of life, is you need to make your desires known. You need to tell your family how you want to go. Whether you want extraordinary measures, whether you want everything tried possible, or whether you're ready to go. When you go to the hospital, when I went to get knee surgery, uh, they wanted to know if I had my uh, DNR paper or not. Uh, they wanted all these legal papers. Well, get those done. Okay, DNR, do not resuscitate. Okay. Get those. I didn't give them one, by the way. I, I wanted to be resuscitated. <laughs> you know, I wasn't quite ready to go yet. <laughs> and if he, if he messed me up about killing me doing my knee, I, would, I really wanted to be resuscitated so I'd come back and get him. You know? <laughs> but when you go to the hospital, they want, to, they want those things. So get those papers done. Talk about it with your family. And fill it out legally and make sure it's all ready. Now, I know some of you real young people say, I don't need to do that. Well, you probably don't. But there's a time when we ought to have that taken care of for our loved one's ease. So they know what your expectations are. Um, Living will, power of attorney, power to make medical decisions. Do not resuscitate orders, all of those kind of things. Get those in order. Okay? Paul, if he could have filled those things out, he would have had a DNR. He said, I'm ready to go. 
I'm ready to get out of here. But I think I ought to stay and help you guys, but man, I can hardly wait to get out of here. Yeah, so he would have signed the DNR paper. You know, if something goes wrong, if my heart stops, don't bring me back. Let me go home. So, so get all that stuff filled out. Now, the reason I tell you that is, let me just tell you a couple of stories. I've gone to the the waiting room and the husband's back in the, the the hospital getting close to death. And I've sat down with the wife and the children. And they say, Dad never told us anything about how he wants this done. About what kind of efforts he wants made or what he, he, he had never told us that. Why don't you go back there and find out? Well, I didn't know that was in my job description, but a lot of people think things like that are. And it wasn't the, the difficulty of me, it was the difficulty of them sitting out there not knowing. You know, and the doctor asking questions. Should we try this? You want to hook him up to this? You want to add this? And they don't know. Okay? That's not a good thing. Okay. Another one, I think I mentioned this one in one of our other lessons in this. Uh, a mother was, an elderly mother, was, well, she was brain dead, the doctor said. But they were keeping her alive. They had her on the ventilator and the systems. They keep her heart pumping and all that. Uh, but she wasn't coming back. Okay. So the family called me, or one of the family called me, and I went to the, the waiting room, and the one that called me got me aside and said, all of us are agreed that we need to pull the plug. You know, we don't need to artificially keep her living anymore, except that sister. And she won't let mom go. She, she just can't let her go. Okay, If that mother would have said something, that mother would have written it down. If she would have told them, when I get to that point, I want out of here. That would have been a whole lot easier for the family. And I, and, and I know some people don't like to talk about this stuff. Some people, especially men, uh, don't want to talk about death. Well, let me give you a clue. It's not going to stop it. If you don't talk about it, it's still going to happen. So talk about it. Uh, one of the saddest times I've ever had at a, a funeral or before a funeral was when I went to the widow's house and the husband had died and he had been kind of slick, sickly, but he died pretty suddenly. And I asked the widow, I said, which mortuary do you have taking care of things? She said, I don't know. I, we don't have any plans. He would never talk about it. He refused to talk about death. He wouldn't talk about any plans. Okay? That was a difficult day. Men, take care of those things. Talk about it with your family. Now, all of that advice was just free. You know, it's not not even in the lesson. Uh, But but let's get back to the lesson. We'll get there where we have to make these end of life decisions. A lot of us will. Okay. Some questions that I've thought through and I think are helpful in making end of life decisions. Sometimes, Uh, number one. And this doesn't come up too often, but is the action active or passive? If the doctor wants to do something to hasten death, uh, is it active or passive? Now, in this state, the active stuff is illegal, basically. But there are some states where it's legal. In Oregon, the doctor said, I 
we can take him out now if you want. Okay? Well, you got to think through that. Are you actively taking someone's life or are you withholding something passively that's necessary for life? There's a difference there. Number two, are the actions required uh, or the ones that are being withheld, are they ordinary or extraordinary? There's ordinary things like air and food and water that people ought to have. But a lot of the medications and the, the pumps and the ventilators and the artificial stuff and all that that we put on people to keep them alive, they're extraordinary. They're, in fact, they're new to our time. The way I think about it and the way I've advised families sometimes is just think if this was 20 years ago. Just think if it was 50 years ago. This person would have been dead four years ago. You know, we didn't have all these medical marvels. We didn't have all these things to keep somebody alive. Okay? So when you begin to think about what's God's will and, and all of that, is it ordinary or extraordinary? Is it something that you force on them to keep them alive? Is it extremely expensive? Is it of questionable benefit? If the doctor says, yeah, we can try this. I don't know if it'll help or not, but we can try it. It'll cost thousands of dollars and might have some marginal help and all that. Ask yourself, is it ordinary or extraordinary? Third, is there any hope of recovery? Now, doctors don't know that. Uh, they guess sometimes, and they think they know, and in general, yeah, they kind of know. But there is a time when doctors agree, a uh, number of them concur, that there's no recovery going to happen here. Okay? That's what I finally did in that situation where the uh, mother was brain dead, and they were trying to decide what to do. I went out in the hall and got some doctors and said, asked them, and they said, no, there's no no possibility, absolutely none. And I said, well, come in this room and tell this family that. You know, let them hear that. And they were more than happy to do it, and they did a good job of it and handled it well and all that. When there's absolutely no hope of recovery, using all these extraordinary means just to postpone the funeral is not worth it. Okay? Not necessary. And another thing I'd ask, the fourth thing I'd consider, is the person Christian? Are they saved or are they unsaved? Now, I know that in many of these situations, it, it doesn't matter. We can't prolong death. But if everything else is equal, a Christian is ready to go. They don't need all the heroic measures. They don't need all this stuff to, to keep going. And Christians reach that point where they say, no, I don't want all that stuff. I'm ready to get out of here. Okay? But if the person's unsaved, if there, there's some chance that maybe we can get them well enough to, to talk about this, there's a possibility that a sinner could have another opportunity to obey Christ, then you might want to consider that. Take it into account. So those are some of the questions that I would ask before I made an end-of-life decision.
Now, some other considerations I just put down in kind of bullet points here that might help us as we think through it. Uh, first one is there's no right to die. Okay? Well, people talk about that. And they talk about a right to die with dignity. No, there's no such thing. You know, it's just, I mean, we'd like that in the worldview where this is all there is and there's no heaven like we sung about, then, okay, then we can worry about that. But as Christians, they, they, this concept of the right to die, or especially to die with dignity, doesn't exist. What was the least dignified death ever? The one on the cross. It was the most important death ever. It was the most powerful death ever. But Jesus didn't say, I've got, I've got a right to die with dignity here. No, no such thing. Second one I put down is doctors are for healing. And I don't know how doctors justify this. And the Hippocratic Oath used to say, do no harm. Okay. And that ought to be the way they function, but they don't in Oregon and other places. Eliminating all suffering is not a good thing. Okay. Sometimes we think it is. I, I don't want anybody to suffer. No, we don't want anybody to suffer. But if we did manage to take all suffering out of the world, we'd mess things up really bad. Our, our bodies, you know, we say, man, that hurts. I touched that hot thing, it hurts. I wish it didn't hurt. Well, okay, let's take away your nerve sensors. And the next time you lay your hand on the hot stove, you'll pretty soon you'll smell yourself burning. But you won't know until it's too late. God designed all this for a reason. And and suffering, human suffering, end of life suffering, even though we don't understand it, to remove it wouldn't be a good thing. It would change our experience here on earth in not a good way. Fourth point I put down there, who decides? If we decide we're going to eliminate suffering, we're going to help old people die with dignity, we're going to make this happen quicker, who decides? You, know, the, you say, well, the relatives. Well, which relative? You know, there's some you might not want making the call. <laughs> Doctors? Some, some panel somewhere? Some bunch of bureaucrats? You want them making the call on this? Well, once we go down that road, somebody's got to make the call. And it's tough when your loved ones are doing it. Next one. We don't know God's purpose. You know? And we, we say, well, we don't like this. We don't want the suffering. We don't want this pain. We don't want this prolonged. And all. We don't know what God's purpose is. We don't know what he's going to do with this and what he's going to work from it. We wouldn't understand life if we took the, the suffering part and the dying process out of it. Let me work on that just a little bit. You eight, sixteen, eighteen 16, 18-year-olds down here, you think you know all about life? 
No, they, they probably would admit that they don't. Well, they really think they do, but they, if you got serious with them, they said, no, I probably don't know all about life. Well, let me tell you something. An 18-year-old doesn't know all about life, and a 64-year-old doesn't know all about life. But I would know a whole lot less about life if I hadn't seen the dying process. If I hadn't seen that, if we eliminated all suffering somehow, and I'd never seen any of that, I would know a whole lot less about life. Having seen the dying process, having seen people die in pain and having seen people die peacefully, having seen people die contented, and having seen people die as a bitter old crank, I know a little more about life. Having seen people die in my home, that used to be common. Not that common anymore. But during our marriage, Cindy and I have had a a few relatives who came to the end of lifetime and they were able to be moved to our home from where they were and experience death there amidst the family. That's a good thing. We, we learn about life from seeing the whole spectrum of life. If somehow we, we got rid of all the suffering, got rid of all this stuff at the end, of, we wouldn't understand life as well. Last one. If we get rid of all suffering and end life when we decide we ought to, uh, we deny God's opportunity to work. And to bring glory to himself. He says he'll bring glory out of things if his saints follow him. Just think about it. If the first time that the doctors told us, okay, buddy, it's all over. You know, you're not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. If we said at that point, okay, call Dr. Kevorkian and let's get it over with. Eliminate all that suffering and pain. If we could do that, it would be easier, wouldn't it? Sure, be cheaper. But would that allow God to work? I think not. I think in in dying, especially the dying of God's saints, I think there's a testimony there. When a saint comes to that time and is ready to go home, but also handles the suffering and the pain and whatever else comes with it, the indignities of old age and all that, and handles it well, think of all the people that see that. The nurses and the hospice workers. The friends and family, the grandkids. They're learning. Okay? They're seeing how God works in somebody's life. And if somehow we shorten that and eliminate all that because we think we're so wise, I think we eliminate God's opportunity to work. Okay, so those are some of my thoughts on the the end of life decisions that we may have to make sometime. It seems kind of difficult when we talk about it this way. Well, what about this? And fill these papers out. And how am I going to make that call and all that? 
We're going to sing a song called When We All Get to Heaven. When we all get to heaven, this is going to seem real easy. When we all get to heaven, we'll probably talk about this sermon sometime and say, I wonder why we worried about that so much. (laughs) Why didn't we just understand how all this worked? Because we're going to see how it worked. Or we're going to understand the purpose of suffering. We're going to understand how God worked good out of this thing and that thing that seemed terrible to us. We're going to understand it all someday when we all get to heaven. So let's sing that song. If you need to come to the front for any reason, come. Let's stand and sing.